morning, everyone, and welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this is episode number 11. Today, we are going to be speaking with Dr. E.A. Quinn. Dr. Quinn comes to us from Washington University in St. Louis, where she holds the position as Associate Professor of Biological Anthropology. She received her PhD at Northwestern University, as well as a Master's in Public Health at Northwestern University. Dr. Quinn is a biological anthropologist with a specialty in human biology. Her research is broadly focused on understanding the ways in which human milk is an essential part of human biological variation and how such variation has been selected for by different ecological pressures. Dr. Quinn is the author of more than a dozen scientific papers and has co-edited a volume on human milk. She has also written multiple methods chapters on human milk research. Her current research project is called Infancy at Altitude, which is a longitudinal birth cohort study of ethnic Tibetan mothers and their infants in the Nubri Valley of Nepal. What she and her group are primarily studying is the effects of ecological pressures, including low oxygen tension at altitude, chronic cold stress, shorter growing seasons, UV radiation, infectious diseases, all these things that occur at these high altitude places. And, and what do these pressures, how do they select for certain outcomes in children through mom's breast milk? And specifically, how does mom's breast milk change based on these, these ecological pressures? And, and how do these changes then show up in the child through adaptive patterns? Is the child different? Is the milk different? And she answers a lot of these questions and, and gives us a really good look at the evolutionary advantage of breastfeeding in different areas of the world. So here we go with another beautiful look at the world of maternal adaptation and how these adaptations then therefore benefit our survival and our health. So here we begin part three of the maternal health series following Drs. Agard and Shafazada. Now you get to enjoy a conversation with Dr. E.A. Quinn. Good morning, E.A. Quinn. I am so excited to have you here on Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. It is an absolute pleasure to get an anthropologist on the line. You bring a really interesting perspective to this, this set of podcasts that we've done recently with Dr. Agard and Microbiome and Mom and Baby, Dr. Shafazada and the Microbiome and how it affects the consumption of breast milk. So we are now switching over into a breastfeeding world. So I can't tell you how excited I am to have you. So welcome. Thanks uh, very much for inviting me on, Chris. Uh, I, um, it's always nice to have a, a captive audience that's not, um, you know, expecting to be quizzed on the material. <laughs> yeah, well, and this is going to be nice for that part. So let me get into this. I'm going to start with a little statement that I wrote sort of to kick off where I want you to run with this. So I'm going to read for you. After the birth of a child, a beautiful event occurs and provides a point of visceral connection physically and epigenetically between mom and her babe. That event is breastfeeding. Mother's milk is an evolutionary marvel, whereby a mother dedicates part of her energy stores to her offspring for survival. She gives of herself literally and figuratively, even during periods of food scarcity. 
Over thousands of years, humans have evolved this dynamic and rich fluid to promote, to promote species survival in the context of our dependent selves as babies. We have massive brains needing large amounts of energy to grow and mother's milk is the culmination of the species learned process of survival. Human milk is the perfect dynamic personalized food for an infant to thrive. It is different from for each mother-child dyad. It changes based on the environmental and human flux. It is in simple terms, the best food for a newborn while simultaneously being the best medicine for all that ails a newborn. So with that backdrop, EA, let's dive a little deeper into how you see breastfeeding through your lens as an anthropologist. Let's discuss the evolutionary history of breastfeeding and why it's so important for human survival. And then I wanna go a little bit deeper into the components as well as your research in adaptability in certain environments. So there you go, take off. All right, well, um, I, I actually kind of wanna immediately engage with my research because I think it gets at some of your deeper questions. Perfect. And kind of starting with your, your initial big question, um, you know, the, I, I joke that the big why question that really drives all of my thinking as an anthropologist is I want to know why our babies can survive in the extreme environments that they, they can. If you look at, at a lot of other mammals, um, a lot of other primates, they just don't have the kind of early life plasticity and flexibility and adaptiveness that human infants do. And so um, I, uh, I, I believe intellectually that human milk is one of the reasons driving that in that, um, as you were talking about epigenetics and, and signaling that we're getting a lot of information very early in life. We are adapting our physiology accordingly, and it's being tailored to um, information and signals that are coming in uh, through that milk. And ultimately, it's a really important factor in explaining why humans can live under such diverse conditions. I mean, because we're tropical primates, and yet we live in we live in subarctic conditions. We live at high altitude. We live um, in all of these geographical regions of the world where primates shouldn't be, and we do, and we thrive. And kind of being an anthropologist and interested in these kinds of both deep evolutionary questions and more proximate um, microevolution and adaptive questions, you know, one of the, the things that I'm always kind of kind of interested in is like how do you solve those problems of raising infants at um, in these different environmental extremes? And there's a couple of different ways you can solve them. You can solve them culturally. You can solve them behaviorally. You can solve them biologically. And I think we see a lot of that in our human strategies for how we're rearing and raising infants is that um, we adopt an incredible number of behavioral strategies, of biological strategies, of community-based strategies in order to um, facilitate uh, lactation and, and, and um, this information exchange. I mean, and it, it varies everything from kind of the specific signal that an individual is passing on to, you know, lovely traditions in a lot of communities of collaborative nursing, where um, infants may be nursed by lots of different individuals and getting lots of different um, biological information and signaling. So I think that's kind of the, the big evolutionary framework that I come at is trying to understand all the different ways in which 
um, as humans, we're solving and completing problems and adapting to them. Yeah, so your work, you specifically were in two regions. I know you did some work in the Philippines and then as well, you did work in Nepal. And Nepal is, I think, the more interesting place because you are at significantly high altitude between 8,000 and 13,000 feet folks were living in. So there's hypoxia, which is low oxygen tension. There's also the cold. And so speak to your research and what you found. What were the differences in maternal milk composition or maternal, you know, um, milk stores and, and all the research you guys looked at, how did it differ to provide that adaptive ability? And because again, I think that will then speak to the value of breast milk in, in any environment. So um, a few years ago, uh, my team, which involves um, Nepali collaborators, both from within the high altitude communities that I work in an area of the Himalayas um, called, uh, it, in Nepal, it's the Gorkha district. The actual mountain is Manaslu. Um, so I was very fortunate to work with um, uh, Dickie Vista, who's a, uh, an OBGYN in Kathmandu as our um, in-country collaborator. And then we had um, a lot of involvement uh, within the Manaslu communities. Um, including college educated women from the community who worked as, as field staffs, support from uh, nurses in the community through Community Action Nepal, and support um, through local NGOs like uh, Nepal Seeds that had longstanding presence, uh, presence in the area and um, were excited about the research. And the community was excited about the research. So we were, so, High altitude communities are frequently characterized by marginalization. And it's one of the things that we kind of see over and over again is that they're often marginalized by the larger nation state. We see that in Nepal, we see it in China, we see it in a lot of, of global contexts. And there's a lot of biological and behavioral strategies for dealing with this marginalization. And as you mentioned, right, they're also dealing with the physiological stress of hypoxia. Um, because the air is so thin and the, the temperatures are often so cold, there's often only one growing season. Uh, there's reduced crop, uh, um, both, out, both production and um, biodiversity of what, what plants will grow up there. There tends to be a lot more emphasis on um, intake of small amounts of animal protein, typically in the form of milk or eggs, uh, than, than like actual meat consumption. And um, you, you also um, get, as we said, the other stressors of, um, that I think is often overlooked is with those shorter growing seasons, you get a lot of malnutrition and it's um, partner infectious diseases. You know, we don't actually know a lot about the infectious diseases that are common uh, in high altitude living communities. Um, we know a lot about what travelers get when they go up there to climb mountains and we extrapolate from there, but there's not a lot of really good research done in some, in some of these areas of the world. And my research is with um, ethnic Tibetans living in the Nepali Himalayas, as I said, on, on, on Mount Monoslu. Um, a um, really fantastic undergraduate and faculty member at um, uh, University of Pennsylvania have looked at this same question among high altitude um, uh, MR um, women living in Peru and, and found some very similar results. Uh, so that's kind of where, where we start to get excited is about thinking about 
milk composition, human milk composition being a way to solve some of all those issues. And like we know um, through the work of like Cynthia Beale and Lorna Moore and other researchers that there's been a lot of genetic adaptation to high altitude. And a lot of that is dealing with oxygen handling and um, iron bioavailability and changes to, to chest structure and function and hemoglobin. But we don't really know how infants adapt to high altitude. And that's really what my work has been looking at over the past um, seven years. So um, most of the stuff that we've published has come from a short pilot study. Uh, we just wrapped up, and when I say we just wrapped up, I mean in September, <laughs> um, a five-year longitudinal birth cohort study of every infant born in a 12-village um, area in, in one of the main valleys of Montesquieu um, called Newbury. And um, we followed all the, uh, we, we recruited everyone that got pregnant for 18 months. We followed the infants for two years. Um, we also followed every kid in the community and then attempted to follow them as they migrated out for education and started going to boarding schools. So we have just a, a tremendous amount of data on the kids that we're still sorting through and, and working through all the biological processes. Um, it was a, it was an incredible study. We had, um, uh, trained research assistants who were from the community who lived in community and collected data every month from every mom and every baby enrolled in the study. Um, and it's an incredible wealth of data for starting to understand how um, milk composition changes over time, how milk composition is impacted by um, various uh, seasonality and other aspects of, of life uh, in the, in these communities. And also to start to understand how infants grow in high altitude communities. And on top of that research, we got really, really ambitious. And we have, we have metabolic measures on, um, all of the, um, all of the mothers. So they volunteered in addition to giving us regular breast milk samples, um, seasonally, they also agreed to be hooked up to metabolic carts uh, and allow us to collect data on how much energy they were expending producing the milk. Because from the pilot research, what we had found was that the milk composition in, or the milk composition from ethnic Tibetan women, and, and I, I actually want to say ethnic Tibetan women here because we also, we had the women recruited from uh, Newbury and, and Montesquieu, and then we had a um, control group recruited of non, of primarily non-Newbury Tibetan women, often um, individuals recruited through Tibetan exile communities who were living at lower altitude in Kathmandu. And the milk composition from both groups in terms of macronutrients, so fat, protein, sugar, and total energy were identical. So there was no reason to, to treat them as different as, as different groups. And what we found was that compared to all of the published studies using a standardized methodology for measuring fat, um, sugar, or protein, that um, the milk from the ethnic Tibetan women was exactly where we would predict for protein. It was exactly where we would predict for lactose. It was just middle, middle of the, the distribution, but it was the highest ever reported for milk fat. And so that's a really interesting question because 
one of the big hypotheses about how do you deal with the chronic cold stress of high altitude and with hypoxia is that you increase your metabolic rate. And there's been a lot of research on high altitude living um, and high altitude adapted individuals or, or individuals from high altitude adapted populations that metabolic shifts are um, very common and that we probably see elevated uh, metabolic rates, which is, it simply costs more to do anything. And um, the data we have suggests it costs more to lactate as well. So that, um, you know, I, we use very old numbers in terms of calculating the energy costs of lactation. I don't know if you've done a deep dive into these, but um, the most recent ones are going to be like Prentice and Prentice and they're in 1994. Um, and those are the kind of like energetic returns on what goes in and what, what comes out. And it's probably highly sensitive to the amount of fat in the milk and the amount of fat in the diet. And so this kind of becomes a really interesting thing because as the amount of fat in the milk and the amount of fat that's being produced for the milk increases, the metabolic costs are going to increase. And the mammary gland can't produce all the long chain fat, it can't produce long chain fatty acids. And a lot of the fatty acids that are incorporated in milk, those are coming either from the maternal diet or from, from maternal uh, fat stores. So um, the mammary gland is only producing through carbon chains of 14. And so kind of, you know, starting, starting to unpack this, and I, I've written previously based on work we, we did in the, in the Philippines, um, looking at fish consumption and DHA that, and, and tying into arguments that, that Michael Power put out in, or um, Michael Power and Dee Shulkin put out in their book, Milk, arguing that human milk fat is actually elevated um, because of high, of um, long chain fatty acid targeting for brain development. Um, my hypothesis is that it's also higher in the, um, medium chain fatty acids as well, because those are, those can be burned for metabolic needs and prioritize those long chain fatty acids. Cause you don't want to metabolize the good stuff that you need for brains and, and right. eyes. Right. When you could put the medium chains that the mammary gland itself can produce from glucose right. in the diet. So that becomes kind of interesting. We don't have fatty acid profiles on the milk from a new breed that's a, a kind of long-term goal um, where there's, there's a couple of like new questions that emerged out of this research that are um, kind of next step goals that, that just haven't quite happened. Um, you know, we've had, we've, we've had a pandemic. And so like most research laboratories, my laboratory was shut down for an extended period of time. Um, we actually had a lot of challenges in terms of supporting the communities and supporting the researchers and also not um, engaging in any kind of um, data collection that would put anyone in the study at, at risk. Um, fortunately, we wrapped up data collection and, and rate it, rate it as, as this was all happening. But, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I'm like, I wish I could tell you all the results, but no, none of us anticipated an eight month research shutdown. Um, yeah. But it, it, it's going to be super exciting. And in terms of the pilot research, as I said, we found that the milk was elevated in fat. And our hypothesis is that this elevation is supporting increased infant metabolic needs. We don't have metabolic data on the infants because it's very hard to do in high yeah. altitude. 
Yeah, the thing that I would question, and because babies have so much more brown fat than older populations as as we age, so I, I would love to see how that milk fat increase produces then downstream effects on the babies having more brown fat with excess mitochondria then in it, which then becomes thermogenic, which then helps adapt again to the environment. And so coming full circle again from the anthropologic side of this, our systems are set up to adapt regardless of the environment, right? And this is where I wanna go next in this discussion. You clearly now have looked at it, even in the pilot study, and you're gonna get more data, and I'd love to circle back with you sometime in a year or two where your research is gone. But if we now go with a hypothesis that the systems are set up to adapt regardless of the environment and the micronutrients, the macronutrients are gonna change based on need, the child will then benefit from that. Then we look and we say, okay, how as a human society, do we not put so much more pressure on the, the, the system to say formula is necessary. And, and this is very important. We're never going to demonize formula because the company is doing a great job in providing for those that cannot breastfeed. But now that you start to look, and we need a lot more research, and I'm going to submit to you that we still need a lot more breast milk research, but what we don't need is more hypothesis that breast milk is better than formula. There's no question. The dynamic nature, the flux of the human, all of these things, the signals that are going back and forth. Speak to that part of it a little bit more. Why do you think we as a society are so okay with providing a substandard, you know, to me, breast milk is almost a medicine, you know, with the, with the lactal, lacto, lactoglobulin and the, the lactoferrin and the IgA. I mean, you just think about the immune side of it. So go from there. Okay. So I actually want to break your question down into three sub answers, if that's okay. Perfect. Uh, your first one about the brown adipose tissue. We actually used uh, NICU thermal imaging techniques to measure brown adipose tissue in the infants using cold stress. Um, we are still in the process of analyzing that data, but a paper came out testing this um, with a pilot test of this. It was Monday afternoon because I had just finished teaching when I saw it. I was disappointed that I couldn't teach. You couldn't bring it into my growth class. Um, it's uh, Sakura Oyama is the first author. Um, I'm going to totally brag. She's an undergrad uh, with me and is now at Yale. Um, but they've um, got beautiful imaging techniques for looking at brown um, uh, brown adipose tissue activation in infants. Um, and it's just, it's, it's beautiful work. So I encourage you to, to check that out or reach out to her if you're um, thinking about this. And the, the group at Yale, there's a phenomenal set of graduate students doing some really cool lactation infant growth work, primarily with the TOBA um, from Argentina, but just like dynamic fun group that is, is absolutely worth checking out. So yes, I mean, that was one of my hypotheses is let's look at what's in the milk and if it's predict, if it's correlated with brown adipose tissue changes. And as part of the seasonal component, then we've got the seasonal climbs that individuals experience across altitude gradients. Um, because, you know, we, we think about the Himalayas as being like, it's a mountain and it's cold, but I mean, if you're at, you know, 8,000 feet in November, it can be 80 degrees outside. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's a lot of variation. And, and some of it is like, you know, once the sun drops behind the mountain, it's freezing by two o'clock, but there's a, there's a lot of variation in 
um, individual experiences of cold stress and individual experiences of hypoxia. And so I think that's um, really kind of one of the challenges of this research is kind of getting at that um, and those experiences. Your second question um, about why do I think there are, are, are so many uh, challenges in terms of meeting breastfeeding goals in the United States. Um, I mean, it's, it's infrastructure. Yeah. We don't have a tremendous amount of support for breastfeeding. And it's not that individuals and families are actively choosing. They're, they're trapped in a false narrative of choice. You know, and this is something we, we frequently would, we, you know, we would frequently see in, um, I, I mean, this kind of like, I really do want to go to this false narrative of choice because if you don't have paid maternity leave and you have to go back to work and you work in a, an environment where you have nowhere private to pump or you have no, you have to clock out to pump and then clock back in, um, you either have to add additional time onto your day where you're away from the work from your infant to make up the work or you're actually suffering a pay cut in order to to lactate and that's assuming your body responds to the pump the same way it does to an infant and we know for a lot of individuals that's just simply not what happens and i just i don't think we have i think we have very much approached pumping as a panacea for um formula it's like, oh, well, if you can't breastfeed because you have to go back to work, you'll just pump and feed express milk. And I don't think we've really done a good job of unpacking what pumping is and how, and I mean, you know, I had a graduate student studying this a few years ago. She's now at CDC. Um, we've got a paper coming out on this where we surveyed about 2000 women about their pumping experiences. Uh, Julie Felice and uh, Kathleen Rasmussen have written extensively about this. That 98% of women are pumping and we don't have any kind of handle on what that looks like and how individuals are navigating that and how individuals are, be, are having to navigate that with their employers. I mean, I work at Washington University in St. Louis. We are a top 20 um, institution or, or university in the country, according to U.S. News and World Reports. We are um, exceptionally expensive in terms of undergrad tuition. Um, we bring in tons of research money and the lactation rooms here are abysmal. Our law school does not have a lactation room. And if that's what an institution like WashU has, I can't imagine what kinds of facilities a lot of other people are dealing with. Like I actually, when I say I can't imagine, I can because people send me pictures. And we did a, a photo voice project with um, breastfeeding mothers where we asked them to take photographs across their day and map on their experiences and kind of like how it impacted what they were doing. And we got a lot of really pictures of really depressing pumping rooms and just stacks of pump parts to wash. And I, I, and I think like kind of getting back to your question, why do people you know, choose formula when we know breast milk is biologically normal and baseline? It's because there's not a lot of support for breastfeeding. You know, not every hospital is gonna have lactation consultants. Lactation consultants are really expensive. If anyone's heard me on the anthrolactology podcast, um, you know, I talked about struggling to breastfeed after my son was born. And that it costs thousands and thousands of dollars to be able to do it. 
because there was always a lactation consultant that was $200 an hour. There was always this, there's always that. And a lot of individuals don't have the resources to be able to access the support and the networks and the like 15 different, you know, flange sizes. And those are all costs that kind of get hidden in this narrative of, you know, breast is best and it's a choice. It's not really a choice. It's, it's very constrained. So like, what can we do on a, on a global level? And I think one of the questions you also sent me in advance was how can fathers support this? Is we need um, federal paid time off. We need better leave policies, but right, we, we need to actually invest in the well-being of families and infants by respecting that parents need time off. Yeah, and, and I'll echo that to a level in our office now as we were pediatric practice, 16 providers, two of our RNs have gone back to get lactation ability, trained, certified, the whole nine yards because that need is so great. And to have it in house makes such a dramatic difference than to send somebody out there, there sitting there day one, day two, day three, and you can provide that support. But the the systems in place from a from a business perspective are abysmal. And I agree with you when, when more than half the workforce right now is made up of women. How is this not front and center in discussion when it comes to, because in our in our situation, you know, we have a, a, a large percentage of our staff are women. And so to not support breastfeeding is to make mom's life more difficult, which means your staff is less ha- happy and they're less, and everyone knows a less happy staff member is less productive, right? And so not that production should always be the end result. The, the, the bottom line for anything should always be happiness is good for everybody on all levels, right? And so I think we really need to have a national narrative around this question. And you're not the only person to bring this up. You know, Dr. Agard, uh, you know, Dr. Mazes, everybody basically comes to the same answer. We need more support for mother, baby, and the, the early family unit. And until we get that, we are uncivilized in my mind. As a society, we're not civilized because a civilized society supports mother. I mean, if you think about the original Native American cultures, it was mom was protected. Why? Because everybody understand intuitively, you didn't need science to prove this, that a stressed out mother performs worse on all metrics of delivery, everything. So, you know, we need to have a significant set of national discussions around your false narrative, because I think you're absolutely right. And it makes me very sad because I am a headwaters of disease kind of person. And to me, until we fix the headwaters, we're going to have disease and the headwaters is breastfeeding, you know, microbiome, the things we're talking about. And so I, I think that's a big, big, big deal. Um, so, you know, for me, I think we need to have that national narrative. And I think part of that national narrative comes after you guys do the big research, right? Where you're sitting here putting out the data saying, hey, folks, I love formula because it's a useful entity for those who need it. But boy, let's stop saying they're equal. They're not even remotely close to equal. The dynamic nature of breast milk, I know you know this backwards and forwards, it changes day-to-day based on the child's needs. So let's shift there for the last couple minutes that we have. Talk about the dynamic nature of breast milk from day one to day, you know, thousand of, <laughs> of, of, of post-birth. Well, and I, I mean, you know, I think it's interesting that you, right, you use the first thousand, thousand days, which is the international marker. And in the U.S., we're hoping for six weeks yeah. of breastfeeding. Yeah. Um, and 
you know, and, and I think part of that actually goes back to your, your, um, your, your comment where you were, you were saying, you know, frequently in historical contexts and um, in less um, heavily industrialized um, and, and kind of um, in, uh, in, independent sounds the right word, and less, less heavily industrialized um, individualistic um, societies, we actually see more intergenerational transmission of breastfeeding knowledge. Yeah. And there's so much of that, that like, if you live in a community where you're constantly surrounded by a breastfeeding and it's not invisible, um, there's often a, an entire um, generation or, or two or three of individuals you can go to for help. And that's largely invisible. And that, that's largely disappeared in the United States because in the 1980s, our breastfeeding rates got so low, you now have a whole generation of individuals who never saw it who don't have the support networks from family or peers and often are making, you know, very, very constrained choices. Um, I'm the first, you know, I'm the first generation in three generations since, since World War II to breastfeed in my family. And, you know, when, when it was hard and there, there was, you know, I, I was very fortunate in that being in the lactation research world, I had very good friends who were lactation consultants, who were researchers, who could facilitate and step into that role. But often when I ask my students who are 19, 20, 21, they've never seen breastfeeding. They have no frame of reference. When I, you know, put up some of the information about like, oh, common breastfeeding problems and here's how, how to manage them, because I teach a lot of pre-med students. And they're stunned because their whole idea is that you just pick the baby up and you turn it and the baby goes, and it's done. Mm -hmm. You know, the baby latches on and there's no narrative around the fact that like, as, as my sister-in-law once said, breastfeeding is natural, but it's not easy. Um, there's no, there's no narrative around the fact that it's, it's actually a learned behavior. Yeah. And this kind of invisibility is greatly contributing to the fact that we need to, that we've really had to have a lot of professionalization of the support. And often that professionalization of the support is because, right, people in those supportive roles deserve to be paid. And if they're, you know, if you don't have a community support, then you need the professional support. Well, they deserve to be paid and they go through the formal licensing to get the insurance codes because otherwise you end up in situations where they won't. But there's also a huge space for like, you know, supportive volunteer-based communities. Um, if you're interested in talking to a community group that has done an amazing job of um, community-centered um, breastfeeding support, we have a fantastic um, Black Breastfeeding Coalition in St. Louis. Um, I am breastfeeding, and um, it is a group of um, individuals who have sought out lactation training and work as community-based support um, for free based on donations in order to increase um, breastfeeding rates among um, African-American communities in Lewis. And they do phenomenal work. Um, I'd be happy to send you uh, Sundora's contact. I, if I you'd would like love it. That, yeah, I would love it. That's a beautiful thing. So that would be fantastic. The, so the other person to kind of connect back to your um, earlier uh, comment about kind of a um, about the diversity of how indigenous communities in North America supported lactation. Um, Kimmy Goldhammer um, in the Pacific Northwest is doing a tremendous amount of work on indigenous um, milk medicine. And because in um, at least 
a lot of communities in the Pacific Northwest, as you were saying, milk is medicine. There's this entire narrative around that. And so um, she's a social worker and IBCLC who's doing a tremendous amount of this and specifically looking at the ways in which historical traumas experienced um, by a lot of indigenous communities have disrupted these processes and using um, a lot of, um, again, for that, for that region, or for a lot of Pacific Northwest um, communities, um, more traditional and culturally informed ways to support mothers and infants. So well, I will send you both of their contact information. Yeah, I'd love that because, you know, when you think about it, just from a, a human health immune perspective, you know, breast milk was a medicine from the perspective of it did prevent most infectious diseases, right? There are some that it did not. Those are the major ones that we vaccinate for because pneumococcus and those breastfeeding really didn't make a big dent in it. If we talk about most dysenteries, most other, you know, things that do kill people all over the world, it, breast milk is hugely involved in that. And so to yes. pivot quickly, um, if you were to pick a diet, a, a, a lifestyle parameter setup, being the expert that you are, what would you tell a mom, listen to this podcast right now, or a father to tell his, his wife, what would you say, hey, this is what you would expect somebody to have the best outcome from their child, knowing that the research is limited. And I totally submit that I understand that. So what we're, what I'm trying to drill down is if you were to to look at it from a perspective of if you were a mother today and you know your child's about to be born, what dietary lifestyle parameters would you, knowing that the data is incomplete, would you recommend for a mother? Like, would you say, you know, a specific diet type, anti-inflammatory, whole 30? Is there anything that you personally have? have subscribed to in the sense of what would make breast milk the best based on what you know? Um, I don't think that there's a standardized diet that you have to follow. I mean, the mammary gland is so good at breaking down what's coming in from the diet. And I really worry that when we get this kind of hyper-focus on like, what's the breast, best breastfeeding diet, we actually end up turning people off of breastfeeding. Because if the idea is that we're going to so need to control and regulate our bodies and deny women certain amounts of dietary autonomy in order to produce the perfect breast milk, then that's actually kind of going to turn people off. And we really saw this a few years ago. There was an ad um, showing a, a um, that was like bashing women for eating hamburgers while lactating. And it's like, if that's what you can afford, then you know, I think when we like try and tie these emphases and things like whole, whole 30, that's a really expensive diet. And it really should be just try to eat a nutritious diet. If, if you are low in, if you are low income or have extra dietary needs, take advantage of things like the supplemental nutritional program that provides you with, with access to supplemental food to, to high quality calories. Should you be eating Twinkies? Probably not, but you also shouldn't be beating yourself up if after, you know, being up all night with a colicky baby, you're like fantasizing about a donut. I, I really think that becomes problematic because it's not like the donut's going straight into the infant. It's being metabolized and broken down. Um, you know, if you have a family history of shellfish allergies and you don't know about the, the baby yet, yeah, probably, you know, maybe avoid shrimp for a while, but I don't think there's like and I really worry about that kind of like single best diet narrative. Cause like the, the women that we work with in the Himalayas, 
Um, their diet is primarily rice, lentils or beans, a little bit of cauliflower, a lot of curry powder, um, a little bit of dairy, primarily in the form of slightly rancid butter tea and potatoes. And they're making this high fat, you know, super nutritious milk. Do we know all the macro or all the micronutrients that are in it? Um, no, but there's, I mean, there's no, no reason to say like, oh, if you want to have the perfect milk, you have to be on all 30. That's a, that's a very problematic and exclusionary thing. And I think we see this a lot in like, you know, it's not uncommon for individuals to say like, I feel like the dietary restrictions are so hard for breastfeeding that I chose to use formula. Um, and, and I think if we kind of hyper emphasize this, then we end up with, with some really, you know, problematic ways of looking at this. So in terms of like how, how a father could support that, you know, if I, I know women that swear by ice cream, my, one of my, um, graduate advisors, she wanted to start a whole marketing campaign for promoting breast milk called, um, eat ice cream every day, lose weight because she lost so much weight while breastfeeding that she was eating like a pint of ice cream every night, just in order to maintain her calories. And, you know, it, it's not true for every woman. A lot of women hold, hold weight. Metabolism changes dramatically during pregnancy or during uh, pregnancy and lactation under the influence of the various hormones and what's suppressed and what's um, increased. So I don't, I don't think that, yeah, there's, there's no single, there's no single diet. Ideally we would like women to be eating a sufficient number of calories, um, hopefully derived from more, um, from, from more hope, from more, more nutritious sources, but certainly, I mean, you know, a lot of women make really nutritious milk and really healthy babies on entirely maize diets, entirely rice diets. Um, and that's something a lot of us kind of working in the global, global, um, in the international context often see. So yeah, and I, I'll say, I, I like your answer primarily from the perspective, again, that you're coming at it from the anthropologic side, where there are such diverse diets around the world that it would make little sense that our systems are not set up to take whatever we put into it and provide an outcome macro micronutrient base where I think it may become untrue. And this, again, I think research needs to peg this down. I think that the modern industrialized diet is so unfortunately dysfunctional. Well, I mean, it's missing a lot of things like micronutrients and it is, but some of the fatty think, acids and the trans fatty acids. Yeah. Correct. And I think the bigger problem now is we've gotten to a point where we are driving insulin resistance at such a high rate now because of the, high fat coupled to sugar, right? And that's where Jerry Shulman's work, I think showed this really well, that if you're consuming high volumes of, of what I call, you know, standard American diet. So the, the, the processed industrialized food source that is unfortunately driving significant metabolic change within the human. And I don't think we've answered the question whether or not that is going to be a net negative for the child or mom. And I think the answer is unfortunately going to come out to be yes. Now I submit to you entirely. I agree hundred percent that we shouldn't be pigeonholing anyone into a very specific diet, save for, I think we really should tell parents to be minimally processed. I think if we stay minimally processed and more natural foods, we'll be on our best foot forward to make the outcome of the child and mom as best as can be within the adaptability that we have. But I'm not convinced at all 
and I and I'd love to see the research come out of this that the standard American diet that's when in if you look as a pediatrician, the change in 22 years in the metabolic situation of children and the actual um, lean body mass is so dramatic. And we know now that the disease risk is so high that I, I would think that the probability is we're doing the same thing from mom to child. And again, the data needs to prove this, but I, that's sort of where I was more driving it. And I like your answer from the perspective of you do have that anthropologic side to say, you know, in Nepal, in here and there, they don't have the same diet. But what well, they do I, have uniquely, I think, is it's minimally processed. Well, and I, I mean, I, I I appreciate you, yes, kind of specifically pulling up that that um, concern that more minimally processed. But I think that often then ties into these larger issues of health disparities Correct. and um, ability to access that minimally processed food that may be out of reach for a lot of families. And so once again, it can become a barrier for a lot of families who are then going to go, well, then maybe formula is healthier. Right. And so it, it, I, I always get concerned about those kinds of, of narratives because yes, it's, it's lovely in principle, but we have a lot of food insecurity in this country. And a lot of times, you know, people are making the best choices within the knowledge framework that they have yeah. and the economic framework that they have. And so, you know, getting people access to that those there's a lot of there's a lot of stigma around things like like supplemental nutrition program there's a lot of economic cutoffs that like you know people can be like $22 over the income and then they're not getting any kind of benefits there's um there's a lot of barriers so i think just you know i think there's a place to say like ideally if you can avoid um you know a name for minimally processed foods that that's great but also if you can't because of economic circumstances or, or, or similar situations, your milk is still good. Yeah. You know, I'm really concerned about this emergence in the, the pediatric literature where they're taking case studies of one infant with extreme obesity and they're looking at the milk composition and they're going, oh, the leptin levels in this mother's milk are so high, she should switch to formula so that this kid doesn't get fat. And I look at the leptin level in the milk sample and I'm like, that's totally within range of what we see normal in some populations. And the babies are, are lean. And, you know, it doesn't, when we start to look at these in more dynamic biological systems and not just in this kind of, you know, very narrow picture, primarily upper middle class, um, white American or European parents, like, hormone levels that the pediatric literature and case studies is going to report is like concerning. We're like, that's a middle of the pack number, no impact on obesity in these kind of global situations. Um, we just had a paper kind of talking about some of this. Um, I, I say just, it was early. It was like February of this year, because this year just evaporated. Right. Um, we were actually looking at um, a lot of these issues of biological norm, uh, normalcy and because there's there there are these kind of dominant narratives that like if there's more adiponectin in the milk, the infant gets heavier. Well, when we actually look at an adiponectin's a metabolic hormone in the milk produced by fat cells in the body, it's not produced by the mammary gland, and then it's actively put into milk. And typically in adults, what you see is an inverse correlation between adiposity and adiponectin. 
the hypothesis was that um, as you have more adiponectin in the milk, you have, you have higher BMI in the infants. Well, once we started getting more data, it didn't hold. It looks like it's a, it's a U-shaped relationship where there's a lot of things happening in um, the, there's, there's a plateau effect, probably about when receptors get saturated, because we don't do a good job of talking about like, right, all these hormones and things in milk have to have receptors. And, you know, kind of, and, and I think a lot of this is probably the priming of those receptors and these metabolic risks that you're talking about. Um, you know, and I, I don't think we have a full handle on um, variability in milk composition because so much of our data does come from individuals eating this kind of standardized American diet. And so there's a very high likelihood that that's shifted what we think about as normal. And so there's a huge space to kind of explore this um, in turn. And, and, you know, just a few years ago, there, was a, there were ideas that insulin wasn't in human milk. And in, in like 2002, people were like, oh, it's here. And I imagine Peter Hartman who died earlier this year being like, I showed you that in 1983. Um, but the whole idea was it was too big to be in human milk. The molecule right. was too big. Right. And so that just ties in this whole idea that like milk must be so biologic, this whole kind of sci or existing scientific narrative that milk must be so biologically meaningless that the only stuff in there is stuff that just leaks through the mammary gland. And not that the mammary cells would be actively pumping stuff into milk, particularly hormones. And I think this kind of ties into some of your earlier questions. Because like, right, there's all this beautiful data coming out now showing that when an infant or a mother is sick, the immune factors in milk are actually changing. The secretory IgA is going up. The lactoferrin's going up. Uh, my group's done a lot with um, soluble CD14 receptor going up. Um, that the, the, these kinds of, of changes are happening um, in the milk and like natural killer cells and all this other, other stuff is actively being put in the milk. Um, if either the infant or the mother is sick or both, which, which is, you know, super neat. And we know that the, a lot of the cells that are producing some of these immunoglobulins are actually migrating from the gut with immunological memory. There was some gorgeous work done in the eighties looking at immunological memory in milk, and they were showing that individuals who had migrated from Bangladesh to London as children were still producing milk with secretory IgA stereotypes that mapped onto common pathogens in Bangladesh. So it kind of comes back to, to, to your earlier point about milk as medicine, and it's, it's so dynamic and it's learning all these things. You know, we're very clean in the US, so our milk tends not to have as much of these immune factors as right. milk in a global context. And so what does that mean when we start to see these other populations living in more subsistence level strategies? So if they're foragers, um, formerly known as hunter-gatherers, if they're engaging in small-scale agriculture, if they're pastoralists and in close um, proximity to animals, all of these things are contributing to the kind of immunological signals and we're just not unpacking that. And to kind of circle it back to our original point, we're also not even unpacking what are the metabolic costs of all that, right? It actually costs it actually costs energy to have an immunological response. And yet we have no good idea for how much the immunological aspects of milk cost energetically. Yeah, and so, so I like the way you did that, brought it all the way back full circle again. And so you sit here again and you sit here and you say, okay, if we're going to say one thing, 
out of this podcast, right? That everybody should hear. It is that we should support breast milk and everyone should breastfeed no matter what, if possible. Right. So regardless of, regardless of dietary, I mean, there are instances where where breastfeeding is counterindicated. I mean, you, you, you know, this is a pediatrician, right? If possible, if possible. So HIV, different things for sure. If possible, we would want everybody to breastfeed. And then when it comes to worrying about diets and things like that, we try and have it minimally processed, but in general, it is the best you can do within the framework of your social determinants of need, where you're at, what you have, right. Is what I'm, what I'm hearing. And I think that makes the most sense again, because from an anthropologic perspective or an evolutionary perspective, that's what we would expect for humans to do is to have access to whatever's in their local environment, take it, metabolize it, break it down into its building blocks, and then produce this beautiful, milk that then the child can utilize for growth and development. Now, again, I think time will answer and you guys and other researchers are going to look and see what specifically is needed. I think it's pretty clear, you know, Dr. Agard's work was seeing that certain high fat diets are driving HMOs in a particularly particular direction that may not be beneficial. Lack of omega-3 fats might be problematic. So there are things in there that we need to pay attention to, but I think in general, to your point, the body will do a really good job if you give it the macros. The question I think at that point is, can we nuance it over time? The research will bear that out. But to me, I think the message has to be as best we can. We really would love to see as much breastfeeding as possible. Oh, I I agree with you that we would ideally like to see as much breastfeeding as possible. I think kind of my more summary of like what we're all doing is that, um, and and I've written this, um, in a couple of different places, is that breast milk is an incredibly dynamic um, substance. I mean, human milk is incredible in terms of its plasticity and its flexibility and its responsiveness to um, to, to biological changes in both in both the lactating individual and um, the infant. And formula is not, and a lot of the hormones and the nutrients and the signals that we are coming to understand are so important in that long-term programming and in setting up, setting up individually optimized growth and development aren't present in infant formula. And I think there's a really good place here to pause and say like, what does it mean when those hormones are absent? And what's that doing to programming? And, you know, a lot of times the the way we, we learn about what macronutrients infants actually need is when they're removed from a formula. And there have been a couple of horrific um, pediatric health crises around the world over the last 50 years when important nutrients were removed from, from, um, from, from formula that people didn't actually understand were in breast milk. And there's been a tremendous amount of selective pressure on um, the, the micros and the macros and the fatty acids and all of that that's going in um, to, to, to the milk and you know, we're, we're really just beginning to impact that. And as you said, right, there's, there's so much more research that needs to be done in terms of how, um, individual physiology impacts, uh, milk composition in terms of how lived experience impacts milk composition, these kind of immunological histories at, um, and also just taking a life, more of a life course approach. Um, you know, Lassick and Gallon in, it was either 96 or 98, um, argued that, right, American women had what they call a covert maternal depletion. So traditional maternal depletion being that 
that um, lactating individuals aren't getting enough calories. And so they are basically starving. And so they're compromising their milk. Typically we don't see this happen till much higher order births. But in the United States, what they were arguing was that because we have such low levels of uh, long chain fatty acids, so like DHA in our diets, that by the fourth, fourth lactation, um, the fat stores were depleted. And, and so you, you were having to make compromises. And I think we've seen a lot of that now with like um, DHA and other long chain fatty acids being incorporated into prenatals to help uh, and more awareness of this. Um, but yeah, and, and, you know, just looking at the change in, in prenatals over time, what's now considered important and the right. postnatal vitamins and like, how are we getting at the, these processes? So no, I think you're absolutely right. We don't have a great handle on a lot of the micronutrients. And I mean, we're just constantly identifying new stuff in human milk. Like, um, you know, you were talking about brown adipose tissue earlier. Um, maybe there's irisin in human milk or uh, UCP3 and UC, UCP5 that are promoting brown adipose tissue development and maintenance. Um, but the number of studies testing that are, you know, I don't need all my fingers to count them. <laughs> right, right. And now with the recent research finding stem cells are even in breast milk. I think the, yes. the, the future of breast milk molecular understanding is wide open. And I think the more research that comes out, the more we're going to need to start screaming a little bit more from the rooftops. And again, I, I hesitate in doing this too much because you get into this world of, oh, you're demonizing mothers who formula feed. And that is the last thing in the world as a pediatrician I would ever want to do. But at the same point, we really need to shine the spotlight on the beauties of what is coming through human physiology in breast milk. I mean, stem cells being found in the mammary, you know, I mean, that's unbelievable. I mean, that, the, the medical applications of that in the future could be unbelievable. Getting stem cells from breast milk to then use in therapeutics. I mean, I'm stretching that down the road, but that's unbelievable, let alone the fact that the child's receiving a pluripotent stem cell. Then for the listeners, this is a cell that can differentiate itself into any different kind of cell in the body. It's basically the cell with all the abilities in the world until it's chosen what to do. And from a human adaptation perspective, that is amazing. I was at the meet, I was at the International Milk Society meetings when Fotini um, presented that research. And it was so weird because she, like, it's this groundbreaking research and then everyone's like, hmm, let's go have lunch. I'm like, wait, we're not gonna like, be running down the street with signs about this. Yeah. Like, this is amazing. Yeah. This is like, this should be shouted from the rooftops. And that, you know, and, and just everything we're learning in that context. But no, I mean, I totally agree with you. And I think, as you're, as you're saying here, um, we don't want to demonize mothers. I think that the issue then is that this has to move from being a conversation about individuals to being a conversation about community support for breastfeeding, for lactation, for milk banks, right. for, um, you know, there's, there's, it is very difficult to get donor milk outside of hospital contexts. And individuals that choose to use peer-to-peer -peer sharing are often themselves demonized. Right. And even if they're making, you know, very intelligent, very informed, very practical choices, there's a whole narrative of around, oh, well, it's dangerous. And then you've got the, the like, 
eBay, big batch breast milk selling, which I will totally agree with you is kind of, kind of dangerous. Yeah. Um, studies tend to come back that they're, that it's really more being targeted at male athletes in terms of those, those kinds of sales. But, you know, I think it's, it's really what has to happen is changing this narrative from, um, from it being about individuals and individual choice to being about community good. And right, that ties in with paid leave. But that's a lot of structural change. You know, when I was in, in the Philippines in 2007 doing my dissertation work, the U.S. government was suing the Filipino government for not allowing formula companies to advertise in the Philippines. And the Filipino government lost. Jeez. And um, there were a lot of protests. The I've got pictures from the newspaper when I was there of all the protests going on down in my lab. I realized we were going to go here. I would have brought them up. Um, but there were all these protests going on. And yet, right, I think that really kind of captures this, this narrative that um, the commercial value of the formula was really what the U.S. was interested in. And I think we, we don't often um, probably talk about that. Like we yeah. talk about breastfeeding as coming at a cost right. and um, formula production being a consumer good and, and a benefit. And really the, the, what comes with breastfeeding is such a, 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 a commercial, I mean, a commercial benefit, but you need to have the support structures in place in order to support individuals, because otherwise they really are actually making informed choices. If your choice is to use formula that you can get, um, subsidized through WIC and, you know, only have to work one job and be able to be home with your baby and your other kid, that's a totally logical choice. Versus right. if you're going to actually end up needing a second job or you're going to have to, to cut, to cut, you know, your own food, your infant's food, there's, you know, I keep bringing it back to issues of food security because, you know, that's, that's, um, what, what we hear a lot of, but I think, you know, and, and, and just kind of really starting to appreciate that this, this needs to be moved from a narrative of kind of this individual demonizing, as you were saying, to this is a community level good, right? Yeah. This is this is seatbelts. <laughs> no, and I agree. And if you think about just the let's say standard cost of alimentum, which is one of the hydrolyzed formulas for roughly about one in four of our babies right now has to be on alimentum because of cow milk casein protein intolerance. That's three thousand bucks or so a year. What if we? What if we said, you know, breastfeeding moms right at birth, we're going to give you that $3,000 to help support your nourishment during that year, unless you need to flip back over to formula and then we'll pour that money into, but, you know, maybe there should be a conversation at the Medicaid state level, wherever it is around, you know, why aren't we pouring as many dollars into breastfeeding support as we're pouring into paying for a formula that frankly is not as good as breastfeeding. I mean, these are questions that we really need to start having. And I, and I agree with you. I think the, the social determinants of need at the at the micro family level and at the a little bit larger uh, community level should really be emphasized because if we can pour more money into the again antecedent triggers of disease prevention we have less money spent on the back end on GLP-1 inhibitors and, and drugs for diabetes or whatever else we're talking about. You know, if it's metformin, we're spending a boatload of money on all these drugs. The problem is the incentives are so poorly aligned right now, as you stated, you know, we're more interested in making sure the formula companies can, can advertise and we are, you know, making sure breastfeeding is supported. So I think that 
entirely hits the nail on the head of one of our biggest problems that we all need to start fighting for. And I think that's going to take grassroots efforts. I don't know any other way the government's ever going to change that narrative. So I mean, we, you know, we saw it with the the CARES Act and all this kicking yeah. kicking out the provisions for um, paid leave. We continue to view paid leave as an individual issue and not as a community good. And really, like the the three thousand dollar number that you threw out, maybe it doesn't need to go to nutrition. If it could just go to, to paid time off, yeah. You know? Yeah, because the money's being spent. You're right. It's just that where are we allocating yeah. those dollars, right? So, yeah. Okay. We're saying, okay, here's three thousand dollars to use on whole food, it, or to you know to use on on minimally processed foods. For a lot of individuals, here's three thousand dollars to pay your rent and yeah. to pay your utilities and you know to buy diapers. Like we don't even talk about the diaper crisis in the, in the country. Um, yeah. You know the, that's that's big. So yeah, yeah I mean. Yeah, these are these are huge societal <laughs> governmental issues that, you know, clearly you yeah. and I can't fix. I wish we could. And, you know, I, I think we're all on the same page about what's most important, again, for yeah. me as as a as a physician and part time, you know, scientific explorer. I think the simple answer is, again, we need to pour as much federal resources and state resources into getting to the headwaters of disease instead of using them on the back end when disease is already rampant. I mean. I've said this before many times, COVID proved that better than anything. I mean, if you're gonna have a bad outcome from COVID it's primarily being driven by decades of poor lifestyle choices, which could be heavily related to, as you stated, no access, right? It's not a choice you actually had to make it's, or wanted to make It's a choice you had to make based on your environment. So we need to start spending more time on that. So you know, I have one more question for you. And I ask this of every, um, guest and and i think i know your answer already but i want you to say it um you know so i have a personal belief that i think the the one government golden ticket that if i was given it that i would force a change would be school lunch i would automatically and 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 it makes sure every food stuff that is fed to a child is healthy if you had a golden ticket to hand to president biden right now what would you one thing what would you ask for Universal health care. Universal health care. That is not what I expected, but I you expected hey. me to say paid time off, but I think universal health care will, will will get at very similar goals. Because right, if we're talking about going to, to headwaters, what are all of these issues, right? What is what it what really is school lunch, but um a, a sub-problem under this? I mean, I you know, we had a we had a really interesting natural experiment a few years ago here in St. Louis when Illinois adopted all kids and it was a universal healthcare program for children. And St. Louis is right on the river. So the other side of the river is East St. Louis, that's Illinois, St. Louis is Missouri. Missouri did not have um, universal healthcare for kids. So you have these two states coming into the same hospitals, being treated by the same doctors who, who don't know what, what the insurances are and the kids from Illinois were getting, were getting caught sooner. Their healthcare costs were lower. They were getting better treatment and they had better outcomes. And the kind of running joke in the hospitals here is it was such a successful program, Illinois got rid of it. But yeah. it, it was, I mean, and there were scholars at WashU studying this and documenting. There's papers out that, um, I can't remember the author because I didn't teach, I haven't taught it yet this semester. It's coming, it's it's two weeks and later. It's, it's a week after Thanksgiving that we discussed this in my class. But, right, I mean, imagine parents not having to 
um, try and navigate how their kids are going to get a vaccine because they make too much for for um, Medicaid and they and health insurance is you know five six hundred dollars a month. Yeah, yeah. And so I, they're I, they're like, where are you going to cut that? So universal health insurance. I think the country in and of itself has would struggle with that on the front end um, for the whole country. But I think your point's well taken. I think you could easily start this out as a universal health care system for children from zero to 21, all children, regardless of income status, regardless of anything. And that would be a really good way to show that providing and services- pregnant, pregnant persons. Yeah, and you could throw that in for sure, because I don't, I, I, find a hard press anyone would fight against that too. Um, and, and that would be a really good way to start the process of understanding that once you have access, the outcomes are better. There's no question about it. And I think, you know, the United States government really has a lot of thinking to do around this. And, you know, there's a lot of forces on both sides because there's too much money involved in the process. But, you know, I, I could tell you, we have a large percentage of Medicaid children in our practice, and we work very, very hard to provide the best quality service for these children who don't have the the social determinants of need lined up adequately for them. And I think that is, to me, that's one of my favorite things about my practice is the ability to take care of everybody, regardless of their financial status. And so I, I hear you. And, and, you know, I think for me, this hour has been an awesome tour through why breast milk is such a beautiful, beautiful, I mean, regardless of where you think it came from, God, nature, evolution, whatever, it is, it is amazing. And, and I, I honestly, right now, medicine business-wise is pretty terrible, but science-wise, medicine's incredible right now. The research is pouring out faster. I can't wait to follow the breast milk research, yours and others, and where this goes. Stem cells are the beginning of, of more things to come. So with that, I am absolutely grateful for your hour, your time, your, your, you know, your beautiful view from an anthropologic perspective. I think I look forward to, to future conversations and, you know, just, I'm just grateful for what you've done. Well, thank you. And um, I will send you that list of the, of the um, additional researchers that I suggested, because I think they're doing phenomenal work. Well, EA, for all the people that are following this podcast, thank you for your time. And I hope you have a fabulous day there in the middle of the country. Thank you. Well, there you have it, folks. That was a beautiful tour through the why we need to look even more at the beauties of breast milk and keep, continue to follow the research as to what are the parameters involved in evolution that are helping us be the healthiest we can be as humans. And I think Dr. Quinn has done a fabulous job of sort of laying out why anthropologically we need to pay even more attention to the future of the mother-child diet as it relates to human health through breast milk. But she makes a very good point that the, the real issues need to be looked at from why are women not cherished in this society? Why are some struggling to find food, to find access to care, to, to have protected you know, environments? And I think that's a really good question that we need to spend some mental bandwidth on. And then, you know, just the understanding that, that breast milk is an amazing, 
amazing medicine for humans. It provides signals. It provides protection against disease. It provides metabolic enhancements. It really is the perfect food for children. Now, again, we're not going to demonize formula. We're grateful formula exists, but we need formula for the reasons it was you know, made for those that could not breastfeed. And other than that, we really need to be promoting breast milk. I do submit that I am fully in favor of a minimally processed diet. I do agree with Dr. Quinn that if you don't have access to it, you get the calories where you can. But again, as a society, we should be promoting the best possible food for mothers and their children. And I am 100% behind her in her thought process that we should be spending our federal and state dollars to make sure children and mothers are cherished and cared for, whether it's through food or stress reduction or anything. These are critical pieces of a society that really wants to be the best it can be. So with that, I know this was a long podcast. I'm going to end it here. Uh, Again, I thank you for your time and listening. And as always, hug those children. Now for the disclaimer, the information provided in this podcast is for information and educational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice or treatment by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. Does not constitute the formation of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.